Take our Bibles this morning, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, once again together. We'll pick up where we left off as we concluded last week, right before those glorious baptismal testimonies. And if you've been coming to grace and you still can't wrap your mind or your heart around what joy Christ has brought to these people that you see and hear worshiping or you hear their testimonies in the baptism tank and it's somewhat still confusing to you, um, please feel free at any time to contact us or just come up and say, hey, look, I want to understand. I'm not really, really understanding all who Jesus is or what he wants to be for me. We'd be glad to talk to you about that. Um, we're just glad that you're here and praying for you love to sit down and have that conversation. Let's pray, and then we'll get into our study this morning. Lord, thank you so much again for the opportunity to look into the, what James chapter 1 calls the perfect law of liberty, the Bible. And help us, Lord, to not just be faithful hearers, but doers of the word, so that we might know what it means to be blessed in our deed. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You've had surgery, I'm sure. I remember when I had my first surgery of the last 11 that I've had, all orthopedic. I was young. I was a young kid, and um, I thought this is this is really going to be no big deal. So I was listening to the doctor. You know, my 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 dad was with me, and I was like, well, let's just let's get a schedule. Let's get over with, and. Um, they did. We had our first follow-up appointment after the surgery, and I was, uh, I was just really ready to get motoring. Um, I think I was uh, 14 years old, a lot of energy, just wanted to get back to playing ball, and I was asking all kinds of questions about, you know, it was going to be a couple days before I could get back out on the court, you know, and um, he said, no, no, I said, about, what, about a week? He goes, no, no, it was going to be a week. I was like, and then I was starting to doubt his integrity as a surgeon, right? Because I was like, <laughs> if you were that good, then I should be playing in a week. And uh, I can remember he put his hand on my good knee and he said, Tim, surgery is surgery. He said, it doesn't matter whether major or minor, it takes the body a long time to respond and to heal itself. Surgery is surgery. I've never forgotten that since I was 14. Made me always hate having more surgery, right? Because you knew the patients were going to... takes the body a long time to recover. You know, sometimes local churches go through very, very difficult times. And uh, it takes them a long time to recover. And when I say recover, re recover back to their missional purpose from getting spiritually back on the court to live for eternal purposes. Corinth was like that. You know the history, right? You know the struggles that the Apostle Paul addressed in his first hard letter. We know in chapter 1 and 2 of 2 Corinthians, his second letter, that they had responded well to the difficult letter that Paul had written to them, but they were still healing Paul's addressing in the second letter numerous things as we go along here that are going to be all about restoring spiritual health to this church 
And one of the ways that you realize that a church is healing, and healing well, even though it takes a long time, is that they, they get back to their missional purpose. They get back to spiritual reproductivity. As a matter of fact, our immediate context that we began looking at last week, they needed the encouragement of realizing the reality of their coming spiritual body. And understanding those realities and those glories to come that are promised, he gets back to some practical hands and feet of ministry, and he says, we have an ambition, and that ambition is to, is to please God. And then he starts to detail here what it means to please God within this context. And Paul apparently feels that Corinth, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is healthy enough to receive this information, or they've recovered enough, if I can say that, to be able to seriously examine again their eternal reason for even being on the earth, let alone born again. He feels they're ready to get back to missional living. At this point, he's going to discuss other things in chapter 6 through the end of the book end of the letter for sure, but that's really the context we're in here, uh, we're at here right now. And so we did speak of um, this ambition that they had in verse 9, and uh, the reality that they were facing in verse 10, and then a realization they had in verse 11, a persuasion we looked at last week, also in the second part of verse 11, we considered a few distractions to this missional purpose. In verses 12 and 13 last week, you can go back and listen to that if you were not able to be here. But we want to move on uh, this morning and look at a personalization. We looked at the distractions. Now that we understand what those distractions are, and those distractions were what? Having the temptation or the tendency to focus on externalism, religious externalism. The other one, other distraction was the... The unavoidable criticism of men. And again, you can go back and listen to that sermon on your own time. Um, but religiosity, religious externalism, and criticism of men. But now in verses 14 and 15, he's going to begin to personalize what he's discussed with us uh, since the beginning of the last time we were together. All right? So let's look at verse 15 first, because verse 15 is really the purpose as to why 14 was written. Because it begins with the word, so that. Right? Excuse me. Uh, verse 15. And he died for all, so that they who live, those would be those who were saved, those who were in Christ, living his life, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. The purpose of the new life that Christ offers is to free us from all that is religious. And those who are religious are described in this verse, this purpose verse, as those who live for themselves. These are the people who, back in chapter 2, remember we studied, we're always carrying around letters of recommendation or asking for letters of recommendation. These were the folks among the flock who were professing believers, but really just religious hucksters uh, involved with self-gratification and self-promotion. These were works, salvation people. 
These were the externalists of the crowd. These were the people who were living for themselves. And Paul says if we're going to be in Christ, if we're going to personalize all that he said before, we, we can no longer be people that are living religiously, but we need to be living for him who died and rose again on your behalf. Think of a moment again of how Paul has described the religious ones in our book study so far. They are the thieves of spiritual joy in Christ in a local church. Always seeking to add something to or to take something away from the sufficiency of Christ because Christ is just never enough for these people. As thieves of the sufficiency of Christ and the joy of Christ, they also seek to dominate the spiritual normalcy of daily ecclesiastical function. We recall even from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and their hijacking of the observance of the Lord's Supper among other normal church activities that were upended because of the influence of mere religious people. But Paul says that this love that transforms us has a supernatural influence in our lives because the power of spiritual and physical resurrection of Christ is behind us. But for him who died, this is our reason, we live for him who died and rose again on their behalf. We are living the resurrected life of Christ when we are in Christ or as we are in Christ. The same omnipotent power that raised Christ from the dead is the same power that caused us to die to ourselves in Christ so that we might die to our religious self-reliance and maybe made new to live for him. Living for Christ, pleasing God in this context, is going to be explained more fully as we move along all the way through chapter 16 and verse 2 where I think the immediate application of what it means to, to please God as to living for eternal mission, missional purposes is going to conclude in chapter 6 and verse 2. But the purpose of our lives in verse 15 is understood by what controls us in verse 14. Let's go back to verse 14 now. For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. Now that's a familiar verse. We're going to see really two familiar verses in our context this morning that if you've known your Bibles for any length of time are going to um, shine as bright lights for you. But I hope we're able to take these two familiar bright lights, this being one of them, the other one being verse 17, and, and, and pull these back within the light of the context. <laughs> okay? The word control here, the love of Christ controls us. Your Bible might say constrains us. This is a daily active reality according to the grammar of this text. It's to purposely restrain or to hold or to control. It's actually used in 1 Peter chapter 2 to describe the influence of a despot, a political despot, a leader who seeks to just control people. Right? That's used in a negative context in 1 Peter 2, but here, a positive context. It's the love of Christ that controls you. 
The control that this love has is clearly observable and very present. I was talking to my wife recently, and as she was speaking to me face to face, I was looking right at her. And she just stopped, and it was quiet. And I didn't even realize she had stopped talking, but I was still looking right at her. My mind was distracted someplace else. And I was even nodding my head as she wasn't talking. And she said, sweetheart, all right, she even snapped her fingers. Sweetheart, you're not present. (laughs) She said, be present, right? I need you right now. The reality of someone who's controlled by the love of Christ is the reality of someone being constrained by that life to live a certain kind of life and to be very present. This is a very observable kind of life that the love of Christ controls us to live. And the rest of the context here is going to bear that out. This love of God is present and obviously so because everyone who's in Christ is controlled by it if they're governed by the Spirit. So having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all who believe have died. Died to what? Well, cross-reference in the margin of your Bible here, Romans chapter 6. I believe it's at least verses 1 through 6. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. That context explains exactly what we've died to and what we live for. We've died to our former way of life outside of Christ, and our desire is now to be dominated with eternal purposeful intention. Someone once said, Christ died our death for us that we might live his life for him. It's a great quote to write down. If a lost sinner has been to the cross and been saved, how can he spend the rest of his life in religious selfishness doing church while marching to the beat of his own drum? Francis Havergal, you're familiar with her hymns. She visited Germany with her father who was getting treatment for his eyesight that was failing. They stayed at a pastor's home while there. And in the home, there was a picture of the crucifixion on the wall. And inscribed on it were the words, I did this for thee, what hast thou done for me? She took a paper and wrote a poem based on that inscription. She wasn't satisfied with it, so she threw it in the fire. Well, the blaze blew the piece of paper back out. And it was not burnt. Later, her father encouraged her to publish it. And then there was a tune by P.P. Bliss that was coupled with it. And it became a well-known hymn that's been sung for years. I gave my life for thee, my precious blood I shed, that thou mightest ransomed be and quickened from the dead. I gave, I gave my life for thee. What hast thou given for me? Christ died that we might live through him and for him and that we might live with him. And again, folks, Christ died our death for us that we might live his life for him. And what was his life about? 
He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Paul says that Christ was the one in 1 Thessalonians 5.10 who died for us, that whether we are awake or whether we sleep, we should live together with him, live his purpose with him. And the purpose of Christ's life and ours is continually detailed, again, as we move throughout this context here. And it's all tied back to verse 9 of this ambition to please him. And again, particularly by being spiritually and eternally uh, reproductive with our lives for Great Commission purposes. So, that's the personalization. Now let's look at some conviction in verse 16. Some conviction. He starts verse 16 by saying, Therefore, from now on we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, so continuing the reality of verses 11 to 15, where knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men all the way through verse 15, which we've just explained together, Paul teaches a personal conviction each of us should develop in relationship to the context. From now on, he says, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Now, um, it's 11 o'clock. If that new clock is correct, 11.01 by satellite time. Um, if you could just really kind of zero in and help me zero in on verses 16 and 17, it's going to have everything done to do, everything to do with you understanding verses 18 through chapter 6 and verse 2 next Sunday. Because it's all within this context of learning to please God and live for redemptive purposes. Okay? And it's essential, like if we don't get this, Paul's saying here to this church that's been healing and is ready to hear this again, to get back to spiritual health, that really each one of us will struggle continually in knowing what it means to live for Great Commission purposes. Because we're headed there. We're already in the thick of it, but we're headed there, clearly. And, and again, there is one verse here, verse 17, which we'll look at next, which has widely been taken out of context by me, and by many of us for years. But understood within its context is really going to help us focus on what it means to live for redemptive purposes. But anyways, we'll start here. Verse 16. We recognize no one according to the flesh. Paul is just simply saying here that those who are constrained by the loving love of Christ should no longer take merely a superficial view of man in general. In other words, we should not view men as the world views them. We should not view men, each other, or those who are outside of Christ as the world views them. That's what this phrase means. We will no longer recognize. Those of us who are in Christ refuse, we refuse to recognize any men according to the flesh. Let's take 2020 as an example. Has the world pretty much been compartmentalized into its exclusive identities? Mankind's fallen propensity of self-promotion has fully given way to open and public self-identification and group 
identification and it's been put on graphic display. I mean, we don't even have to detail this because it's so obvious that the devil, uh, what the devil has done to even divide God's people, let alone a nation, over identity politics, among a few other identity issues in 2020. I think 2020 just brought out some underlying issues in us and in many others that have been there for a long time. Paul says here, I don't have any identity crisis issues anymore because the world does. In Christ, I don't. I will no longer recognize you, Corinthians, according to the flesh. I will not any longer identify you, Christians, the way the world even identifies you. And I will not identify the world even as the world identifies itself. We've always said here, and I think it's a great restatement here of truth, application of truth. When God looks at the world, he only sees two kinds of people, saved and unsaved. He sees the spiritual condition of man, not the labeling or the identification of man. Your identity crises, my identity crises, ours, the world's, do nothing but wrestle us away from the sufficiency of Jesus Christ and being exclusively identified in him. And it's a constant temptation. What were some of the identity issues Paul dealt with in his day? Well, in this context, we see the religious versus true saving faith distinction. In the first century, often that distinction could be tied to a Jew-Gentile identity. Paul addressed the national identity issue throughout his writings, especially in Ephesians chapter 2, probably being the most profound address to these devices of nationalism within the church. Here's an example of a church that had allowed religion to suck the church back into the, the, uh, the vortex of identity issues. Go over with me to Galatians 3 and verse 28. Not just Ephesians 2, read the whole chapter, but Paul summarizes an address and a conclusion to those who are having identity crisis issues in Galatians chapter number 3 and verse 28 where he says there is neither Jew nor Greek there is neither slave nor free man there is neither male nor female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Amen? Now, were there any political identity crisis issues summarized in verse 28 by Paul, potentially? Were there any social identity crisis issues identified there by Paul? Political, social, were there any religious identity crisis issues? Oh my goodness. 
You know the backgrounds of those people and those people groups? You know there were. But he says, in Christ, we no longer view each other according to the flesh, the way the world views each other. So I no longer gauge how spiritual you are by your political persuasion. I no longer gauge how spiritual you are by whether you wear a mask or whether you don't. I no longer gauge how spiritual you are by any way that the world evaluates your person or your character. I evaluate you in Jesus Christ alone. I will no longer, we will continue to no longer evaluate each other by those things that cripple gospel mission. This is our conviction. There are so many hot topic current event issues that still remain in our culture going into 2020. And I know we all have to wrestle ourselves back to gospel intention. And it's worth doing it. But my friends, the world wants to continue to force us to view each other the way it views us and the way they view each other. This is what the world lives for. This is why a fallen world exists and it can affect the church and it can get the church off mission from what pleases God in the context. Realizing that someday we're all going to still stand before Jesus Christ at the Bema seat to be judged as to our works and relationship within the context to living for eternal purpose. So what now is continually distracting you from living according to the Great Commission? What's consuming your headspace, your heart space, that may be keeping you from even praying like you used to? in relationship to being gospel salt and light in our culture. The world would love to continue to keep you distracted away from gospel eternal purpose because that's, that's why Satan exists himself. <laughs> we already saw that in chapter 4, didn't we? The God of this world exists to do what? Deceive, to distract. And he'll even use religious people inside the church who have identity crises to distract the church from its eternal mission. And Paul just says here to this church in Corinth that's recovering after being hurt for so long, it's time, guys. Right? Be present. <laughs> it's time, guys. Why are you here anyway? Why are you saved anyway? It's time, guys. Stop identifying each other the way the world identifies you. You're in Jesus. We're all in Jesus. Let's go. Let's go. Which brings about a new condition in verse 17 that we'll close with this morning. 
Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, since you are in Christ, they are a new creature. The old things are passed away. And what? Behold, new things have come. You cannot any longer, for the rest of your Christian existence, if you want to know this passage well, divorce verse 17 from verse 16, and 16 from 15, and 15 from 11 to 14. Certainly, from a 50,000-foot view, when you're in Christ, you're made a new creature, your old way of living's done, and he gives you a new way of living. But particular to this context... The old things that are passed away for someone who is in Christ are believers who continue to have identity crises. In Christ, they're gone. In Christ, they're wiped away. Right? Your social status, your academic prowess, your vocational pinnacle of existence. None of us are identified by anything any longer outside of this exclusive identification in Jesus Christ. He's who I want to be known by and he's who I want to be known for. It'll take a long time for us to wrap our minds around that. But Paul's very clear here. Since you are in Christ, then. This is a conditional thing for sure. You are new. And since you are new, there's one thing we're not going to do anymore. Praise God, it hasn't been much of an issue here at Grace at all. I thank the Lord for that. You're doing a great job. In Corinth, as they were getting back to spiritual reproductive health, it was. And so he's addressing it. But we're not going to identify each other the way the world does anymore. And we're not going to be identified by the world, by worldly things, and by worldly identities. Okay. It's interesting to me that for those of you that know your Greek New Testaments, right, the old has passed away, that's in the aorist. Okay. All things have become new, that's in the perfect. Those of you that know your Greek, you can let that be a blessing to yourself. Perfect tense means that there was a time when you were born again where identifying yourself with old things was over, with the result it's continued to be over, with the emphasis today. Like today, it's no longer an issue for you, and that's obvious. It shouldn't be. Like, like it's like so obvious. Like there should be no saint underneath this roof that walks this campus anytime you're here that's exclusively desiring to be or needs to be identified by anything else than the eternal person of Christ and the eternal purpose of Christ. Amen? Amen. I mean, really? Wrestle, wrestle, wrestle. I know. Wrestle, 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 but Pastor Tim. But Pastor Tim. You know, I know, but no. No! No! I know I have a tendency to be like a coach in a halftime in a locker room sometimes. <laughs> I kind of apologize for that if I need to. And typically when I'm getting like super passionate, I'm 
primarily preaching to myself, not you, <laughs> because I like to know how fallen I am and how, how easy I get off track. Ask my kids, ask my wife, they'll tell you. But no, old things are gone. What's become new? Simplicity's become new. Simplicity's become new. So when I look at a musician that grew up in Philadelphia, I primarily see Jesus first. One of you grew up in Philadelphia, didn't you, somewhere? Yeah, I thought so. Right? You see my point? All that's God's will for you. Praise God. Right? But really, what do I want to be known for? What do I want to be known for? So many applications in the last year, right? I'm not going to go through those to distract you. We'll distract ourselves unto these things that have become new. Our new relationship with Christ has brought a new relationship with even the religious ones among us who are still bound and determined to have identity crises and things that exist in the world around us. And to those who are in Christ, we say no. I love you in Jesus. I don't care about anything else. Because since I love you in Jesus, now hang on with me carefully. Since I love you in Jesus, I'm assumed that you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Am I right? And I'm assumed you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And since you're wanting to congregate with the body of Christ, I'm assumed you're trying to be governed by the Spirit. Am I right? And it doesn't matter to me about your past or even your practical present. Based on those three things alone, I can assume that you're growing in Christ-likeness and you're wanting to embrace the holiness that is God. And now we grow from there. We grow from there together. Maturity demands the setting aside that which is old within this context. That's the demand of spiritual maturity. Because it's progress forward. The writer of Hebrews said in chapter 5 and verse 7, the days of living merely in the flesh have ended. And living in the flesh, according to this context, the days have ended. And if we can embrace this life as new creatures in Christ, then what we'll find to be true in verses 18 to chapter 6 and verse 2, like I said earlier, will be profoundly doable as a church, and that is our next point, mission. Mission. Look at verse 18. Mission. Now, all these things are from God. What are all these things? Everything that's been within our context since verse 6 exclusively laser-focused since verse 11. All these things that are reasons as to why we persuade men. All these things are from God. They're of a divine, eternal, perfect source. Who reconciled us to himself through Christ and then did what? He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 
mission. Mission. Namely, verse 19, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, now that we understand our mission, let's understand the eternal underpinning of that mission. We are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him and working together, verse 1 of chapter 6, with him. We also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain, for he says... At the acceptable time, I listened to you. And on the day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We'll study that Old Testament text in light of this context next week. But it's all about mission. It's all about mission. The Bema seat will include a number of things in relationship to You're serving in the local church with proper motivation and proper method in certain circumstances, such as communion and baptism, so forth. But it will include this. Are you with me? It will include pleasing God unto missional purposes. Did you live your life with the same missional purpose with which Jesus lived his? And if you really, knowing therefore the holy awe and fear of God, we do what? We persuade men. So in relationship to what we know now, we're going to finish with mission next week. I'm going to do a little persuading here. If you slip into eternity today, the beam of seats for you today. If the Lord Jesus comes today, the beam of seats for all of us. And this is one very clear laser focus with which he will address your activity inside the local church. The gospel changed you. How often have you given it to others? Now hang on with me here. I think this has everything to do with what Jesus said. Some pretty sobering words. If you deny me before others, I will deny you before my Father in heaven. Some are lost in space right now, and I get that. You probably need to be born again. Because if you're born again and being governed by the Spirit, and you really understand a beam of seat context, this is a big deal. Knowing the fear and awe and terror of the Lord, that Jesus, who thought it not robber to be equal with God, made himself of no reputation. You know Philippians 2. You know Hebrews 12. The joy set before him endured the cross. How can we not be missional? 
And my friends, no virus can quarantine your gospel witness. And if it has for the last 10 months, you need to get right with God. Because this is the greatest gospel time in your lifetime. If you've allowed the virus to pull you away from people and people away from you, then you've stepped aside from this missional purpose. And there's no excuse for that. None. God's in control of the numbers. We're not talking about numbers getting saved. We're talking about us knowing that day, knowing the new life, knowing the old things we pass, put off and the new things we want to pursue. This is just what we do. So we spend time begging God in this unique time, Lord, somehow put me in contact with people that I might shine the light of Christ before them. And Lord, if you would just give me an opportunity to speak of the joy you've brought to my life, I would really, really embrace that opportunity. Okay? So next week we'll talk about mission. All right? Thank you, Lord, so much for the simplicity of this context. I trust, Lord, that we've handled it this morning with integrity. I trust, Lord, that the Spirit of God will use it as to its context. And we remain excited with great anticipation to regather next week to discuss what it means to have all things become new in relationship to mission. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right.